Hi everybody, York Bauer, CEO with MoxieWorks here, and welcome to another episode of The Real, which is our podcast here at MoxieWorks, and I'm joined by one Matthew Gardner, Chief Economist, or Communist, as I know I like to give you a bad time about, uh, for Windermere Real Estate. So thank you for taking the time and welcome. Yo, delighted to be here. Wonderful. Well, so for the audience, you and I know each other, but for the audience, tell us a little bit about how you ended up being an economist in the first place, because uh, it's pretty rarefied air and you've done it well and you've done it a long time. So what was the process by which you became an economist? Um, well, just as a pure economist, um, well, that would be going back to uh, under my undergrad days. And uh, when I was accepted to go to Oxford for my undergrad in economics, my mother said, well, what the heck are you going to do with an economics degree? Well, mum, every decision you make, I can find an economic principle behind it. Therefore, I should always have a job. Uh, at which point she said, great, she gave me her blessing and <laughs> away we went. What she didn't understand was the fact that I was going to get my undergrad and enjoy it so much. I then went to grad school, so I uh, ended up staying in school way too long. So, uh, I mean, economics is social science. Uh, it, it applies to pretty much everything. And that's what makes it very fascinating to me, and more so because it is a social science. It's very hard to predict human nature, and that has to come into play as well. So it's not just all math. It's also trying to understand the direction that people want to go and what are they going to do. So on a macro basis, that's pretty much why I got into it in the first place. But that was before I decided to hone in on real estate. Yeah, and so let's talk about that, because you and I are both very data-driven people. I love your social science comment because I agree with you. And obviously, real estate is all about social science. So talk to us about how you made the transition just from economics generally to specifically focusing on real estate. Right. Well, when I eventually decided uh, I had to get a, a real job, it was almost kind of serendipity. Um, the first job I actually had was for a company based uh, in London called Clutton's. And Clutton's, um, they were a firm of what's called land agents. So they managed portfolios for institutions. And mainly it was real estate portfolios. And this was for... Uh, the British Royal Family, the Church of England, and a few other, the Oxford Colleges. So not small bit players. No, 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 no. Uh, I mean, my only lifelong NDA actually is with the Crown. I still can't. Lifelong NDA. I still can't talk wow. about. Well, the thing is, uh, is that, and that's Well, the Royal Family's talked about it, so I don't well, know yeah, well, yeah. Can, but okay. Yeah. So uh, the Crown, uh, you guys didn't get it all back in 1776. We kept rather large chunks of the East Coast. And that's what first brought me to, to America, was looking at that and analyzing that portfolio. So uh, that was the first inroads to real estate in aggregate. But mainly it's kind of farms and towns and villages uh, and looking at uh, the, the direction that they were going to go. Coming across to America, and obviously I've been to the East Coast a lot, my sister back then actually was working for Microsoft uh, and subsequently <laughs> retired long ago. <laughs> and uh, so I came to Seattle and uh, I, I'll never forget this. So I remember walking down actually Second Avenue here mid late afternoon bustling things going on this is back in the mid 90s i believe and uh stopped in to have a cocktail as one does i came out no later than six o'clock and i could have fired a bazooka down second and not hit anyone i'm looking around what is going on clinton started world war three or something uh so being a nosy economist i ran off to the library to figure out what happens in seattle and they told me that everyone worked here but no one lived here they lived in a place called bellevue and they got there uh, across a, a bridge which had sunk two years beforehand. <laughs> so, Sadly uh, true. It's very, very bizarre. So who analyzes real estate? Who analyzes housing? And quite frankly, very few, well, I didn't really find anyone uh, that did. On the commercial side, yes. On the residential, no. Because for the better part, builders kind of licked their thumbs, stuck it in the air. Yes, I'll build this. And so uh, it, it appeared to me to be a good opportunity 
to bring some of my skill set and some really call more data-driven analysis when it comes to people making decisions as to what to develop. Uh, hung my shingle out uh, and the rest, quite frankly, of the last 20 plus years uh, is history. Wonderful, yeah, and, and you've been such a, a strong voice, including in a publication today in the Puget Sound Business Journal about what's happening here locally. Mm -hmm. But I know you're also advising uh, at the state level. You mm -hmm. do stuff with the governor's office yeah. here, but you're also a, a featured guest regular on CNBC. I mean, you really do have a national uh, view and even a global view. So I'm curious if you could, for the audience, because mm -hmm. we're you know we're talking to people all over here. Sure. Um, Talk about what you think is is happening from here, and I'm going to extend it not only through the the rest of 21, but into to 22. You know what? There's lots of stuff that you've said about it, including recently gathering of eagles. Saw your yeah. speech there; it was wonderful. Thank you. But for the audience, you know, tell us tell us what you think and and what you would put in the heads of particularly brokerage leadership of what to expect through the end of next year. Well, obviously, it's been fascinating to see the impacts of the pandemic. Uh, really quite remarkable. And I'll never forget back, uh, it would have been last March when it all started to come into play. A lot of people were looking around saying, well, the housing market's going to collapse. Um, I, don't, I don't understand why that would be the case, but I disagree with them. But people were really waiting for that to, to occur. They think you know, we're seeing a massive downturn, therefore it has to hit housing. Quite frankly, brokers took a week off, uh, right. quite literally, and mainly because they were forced to do so. So we saw a massive contraction in, in May of that year, last year, uh, but then spike back significantly. So what was going on? Well, there's a, a couple of things to come into play with that. Uh, people are looking at housing as being a, a safe haven in, in essence, but also the remote work situation was starting to be thought about more. Now that had a lot of implications. Now, a lot of people thought, well, it's gonna be the demise of, of the urban condominium market, for example. That certainly did get hit for a while. However, it has also subsequently bounced back quite well. But on the suburban side, if you think about um, housing and our, our demands of it, we look to be close to where we need to be, close to where we work, and there's a value to that. Therefore, if you look at most cities in the country, the closer you are to the job centers, the more expensive housing becomes, right? because there really is that value. Well, if I'm only gonna be coming into an office, let's say in, in a central business district a couple of times a week, well, potentially I could put up with a lousy commute if I can move further out and either afford to buy my first house, which is where we're seeing a lot of millennials today who, again, have been rent burdened. Uh, they want to buy, but thought they had to live close to where they worked. Now they don't. So we've got a wave of them. We'll talk more about those guys in a minute. But, but also, just in general, people say, I can get a lot more house further out. But it's not black and white. We're not going to all move to Arkansas uh, and work remotely. I think for most companies, more than likely, unless you're Jack Dorsey at Twitter, uh, you're going to say, no, it's going to be uh, a blend of those two things. So we are going to see an ongoing migration. I think it's going to be demonstrative of the resurrection of the suburbs, which is something which we hadn't seen for, for decades. Yeah. So we'll see a lot more of that. So I think suburban development is going to grow. Uh, and ultimately, when we think about the housing market, have we got ahead of ourselves on a price point standpoint? Absolutely, we have. Home prices can't go up by 12, 15, 17% per year, unsustainable. Why? Well, we're not making that much more money year over year to service that debt. But you can see it occurring if interest rates are dropping. And we obviously saw that down in the high twos even today uh, in terms for a 30-year fixed, where the long-term yeah. average is 7.5%. Yeah. So that is allowed, so that's driven it. But I think a lot of people now, because of that price escalation, they're getting worried that a new bubble is forming. No, it's not. 
However, what we are seeing in many markets, at least that I'm looking at, I tend to look at list prices rather than sale prices. Sale prices tend to be backward looking, list prices are forward looking. And we've seen almost an apex, so reaching uh, that in many markets. Here in Seattle's one, Denver's another one. Uh, and that tells me that over time, we are gonna see that pace of appreciation start to slow, which makes sense. At the same time, mortgage rates, well, they are gonna rise, but by my model, we're not gonna break 4% until 2023. It's gonna be a ways away. But if they're not coming down again, that's another headwind. So affordability in concert with rising mortgage rates means the market's gonna start slowing down. That's good. We need to build more. And that's sadly what we are not doing. Yep. At the same time, we're creating a lot of new households. Think millennials. There's about nine and a half million millennials turning 30 over the course of the next 24 months. That's a time where the median age of a first time buyer is about 30 and a half. So that's when they're gonna mm. choose to get into real relationships. Uh, think about moving out uh, of their urban apartments, for example, and thinking about buying a house. But what can they afford and where can they afford it? That's the thing which worries me far more than any concerns over bubbles. Got it, yeah, and I think that's interesting. We're sitting here at the intergalactic headquarters of Moxie, and if the audience were able to see, you know, we have a handful of people in right. the office for the reasons you said. So I think it's interesting. We, we feel the same effects that you're talking mm. about, and uh, we've elected to be in a permanent hybrid situation, yep. so we will be a proxy for what you're talking about. Um, so let's talk, though, about the housing price. There's been, uh, and you just referenced it, right? At all-time highs and, yep. and those kinds of uh, conversations. But you have an interesting angle on that, on, on what it really means. Is it truly an all-time high? And we've talked about inflation adjustment and everything else. Mm -hmm. Separate for us the, the hype, if you will, the headline sure. treatments versus what you think is really going on and what that means for the longer term. Well, you mentioned inflation, and that certainly comes into play. So if you think about it on a nominal basis, nominal, non-inflation adjusted, home prices have increased by roughly 270% between 1990 and now. Now, by any stretch of the imagination, that's, that's an extraordinary number. But is that really meaningful? And I would argue it's not. Now, I would love to take credit uh, for, for taking home price and adjusting it for inflation. I cannot do that. Uh, my dear friend, uh, Bob Schiller, uh, of the well-known K. Schiller Index, was the first one to come out with that theory. Uh, and it, in his book, I think, Irrational Exuberance. Mm. And, uh, and it, it makes sense because the value of a dollar today is a lot different to the value of a dollar in 1990. So what I ended up doing was taking national numbers going back to 1990 to now, which I mentioned up by 270 something percent, but then adjusting it for inflation. CPI minus shelter, See, otherwise you're double dipping. Uh, uh, and when you do that, home prices are certainly higher, but they're only higher by about 86%. Now, if you take that on a compounded annual, annualized growth rate, 2% per year, which mm. is historically where we've been since the late 1800s which is basically inflation, how home prices are adjusted. So when you do that, it's a lot better, but it's still a lot of money. Well, what if you take that inflation adjusted home price and look at the mortgage payment associated with it? Because mortgage rates, we know, have dropped precipitously. They were at 10% in 1990, below 3% today. In absolute terms, your mortgage payment is a lot higher. We know that. However, in inflation adjusted terms, it's almost 10% lower than wow. it was. So, and that is again, what's driving the market in, in most respects. So those that talk about bubbles and unsustainable and you know, it's all gonna burst and come down again as it did through the financial crisis of 2008, I, I just don't see that happening. However, 
Can it continue to escalate at the same rate? Of course it can't. So uh, my job is to worry about housing markets. That, that's what, what I do. And to try and forecast when there are bubbles uh, being, uh, be, being created. On a national basis, I don't. Now, there are some overvalued markets. We know that. I mean, Manhattan gone through a massive change uh, in terms certainly of its, uh, of its urban condo market. Here in Seattle, in three-county region, uh, more in King County is a concern because you're seeing significantly greater price growth in Snohomish and Pierce because of those people moving out of King County, whether they're going to Snohomish or down to Pierce, saying it's cheap. And uh, we're also finding an influx of people from California who really think even here in Seattle that we're yeah. cheap. <laughs> so uh, that's driving on that, that price growth. But in terms of any concern over the market, uh, it just I think it's unfounded. I think there's a but bad press sells. It's what yeah, people exactly. want to see. Well, and that's a that's such a useful perspective. Thank you for sharing that. I think, especially in our industry, we tend to often react emotionally. We're an emotionally driven industry, which has its massive benefits. But there's that data again setting us free, and I think it's a wonderful counterbalance. So thanks for that. Oh no, and, and it does. I mean. The, we, as I mentioned at the start of, uh, of our conversation, no one really analyzed the housing market outside of academia. So yes, so in Texas A&M, Harvard, uh, USC, got some great schools, UW, can't forget them, yep. uh, and the Ransted Center, but again, very academic. Um, and no one really looked at it from uh, an outsider of school standpoint. Yet the value of housing today in America, is about $33 trillion, uh, today's values. It's a lot of money. Yeah. So we really tend to now, I think we're going far more toward uh, analyzing in the same way that we see in the commercial environment, in, in the office world. And I think that's going to be a very positive thing. And even from a buyer's perspective, you know, buyer beware, uh, caution was generated because of 2008. So they're now being a lot more thoughtful and really studying markets more themselves. And they really look to that data, uh, which kind of basically means that's why I'm on TV and radio as often right. uh, as I am. Well, and I think you're right about that, and the technology certainly has played a role in mm. democratizing that data so that people can be more thoughtful and, and self-analytical. So what, what role do you think technology can or should play in this coming phase of, of the market, not just through 22, but the next several years? You know, what, what do you think it can do to help <clears throat> both the industry that's serving that consumer and the consumer themselves? Well, it's certainly remarkably important. And I always go back to good old Moore's Law, um, uh, co-founder of Intel, you know, doubling a capacity of a transistor every two years. So what does that really mean? Well, it means that technological innovation becomes exponential, just faster and faster and faster. And uh, over the last decade, let's say, we've seen a lot of entities out there look to, into the residential real estate market because it is very rich with data, if you can get it, uh, as, as something which they want to get involved in. So we've seen, like certainly of your company, uh, and brokerages, I mean, we are still the only traditional brokerage in America that has an economist. Yes. So uh, it's becoming more important. And of course, and I, I live on data, I live and breathe it, that's, that's, that's my world. You and me both. Uh, exactly, so I think that the implications are massive because it's always gonna be, come down to a foundation, uh, almost three foundations. One, the consumer themselves. Uh, and they now, they expect data. They expect to be able to press a button, know what's going on, see what's in the marketplace, see what prices are doing, et cetera, et cetera. For the developer out there, I mentioned uh, again when we started, the, the, whereas they used to lick their fingers and they say, I'll build this. Well, now, no, it's, there's too much money involved. They can't do that. Did they before the housing bubble burst? Sure. Why? Well, OPM, other people's money, right? <laughs> uh, now they've got to have some skin in the game. The same thing on the finance side. So a lot of banks, lending institutions, they are making sure that all their ducks are in line. And all these three groupings require data. 
And so one, how can you get it to where can you get it from? But three, how are you going to pass it? Are you getting it in the easiest or most readily available form, which is utilizable? Uh, so, I mean, I, I live in Access and Excel, right? The, the, the world in which analysts live. Not everyone does that. So again, it's looking more about making a consumer face or interface, one which makes sense, which is logical, is trustworthy, that can be utilized. So I think we're going to see more and more data-driven applications within the residential market in the same way, as I said, we've seen already uh, in the commercial world. Yeah, it makes total sense. And our, you're familiar with our home sales predictor, but for the audience, you know, it's, it's example of that where anyone can come look on our website and see what our predictions are for the coming period. Uh, so speaking of predictions for the coming period, if, if you were speaking one-on-one -on -one to mm -hmm. a brokerage owner that's listening here, mm -hmm. as, a, as kind of a final thought here, what would you say to them about how they should think about their business? What, what proactive things might they do over 2022 to, to kind of prepare themselves best for the future in your mind? Well, we've already started to see a, a massive influx of new brokers. Uh, again, brokers tend to ebb and flow. When the, when the market's doing great, we see a lot more of them. When it's lousy, they all disappear, or at least the new ones do. The, the old salty brokers are always going to be around. They, they've seen several downturns. So growth for growth's sake, I'm not a fan of. Uh, it makes no sense. I completely agree. And I, I think and true also, for technology companies too. Oh, sure, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, it dilutes. If you think about the country as a whole, last numbers I saw, the average broker in America sells four homes a year. That's not hardly yeah, a massive yeah, number. That's a hobbyist, uh, and that's yeah. it. And, and that goes back in history as the way it used to be back in the 1950s, quite frankly. So growing uh, growth for growth's sake doesn't make any sense. I, I think again, you're diluting your pool uh, by doing it. But also, uh, I think that from a, a having your brokers understand the technology tools that are available to them. Now, it's very easy to jump on an MLS system. There's some certainly better than others, uh, and think you can figure out what you need to know. But no, I think it really is. I think that technological evolution is something which is going to become increasingly important, because from a brokerage standpoint, uh, their brokers or agents, depending on where in the country you are, what the, what name you call them, uh, they're being asked questions by their clients. What answer are they giving? Are they giving kind of anecdotal, I think it's going to be great, or this market's always been fantastic, or this street's better than that? Well, okay, you know what you're talking about, but is this something which the consumer is going to be able to embrace? Are they going to believe that? So I think you've really got to come up with quantifiable and qualifiable uh, data for them and information to provide to them. And I think a lot of home buyers now, certainly some have got caught up in the furore of lack of inventory and bidding wars and these kinds of things. But it's, it's still very, very important to get them to a level of comfort. So understanding the data platforms that are available to the brokerage is going to be more important, I would say, now than ever before. Less anecdotal uh, discussions over, you know, my, my neighbor says it's great. Uh, more, you know, what really is going on, what was, uh, and looking forward, what we think is going to be. Uh, and that, I think, is going to be one of the biggest changes we're going to see. Boutique brokerages, they're still going to be around. I think we'll still probably see more of them. Could we see uh, some mergers and acquisitions? Sure. That, again, is a, is a fact of life. But uh, I think that most of it, when you think about the future of, of real estate on the tech side, beyond automatic signing and online and these kinds of things, it, it is going to be the tools, what tools are out there for the brokers that can be provided by Moxie or by whoever that will help them improve their business, help them get above that threshold of four transactions a year to a place that they want to be. So I think that tech is going to be and is going to play a massive part 
uh, as we continue to, to grow and continue to move forward. Uh, obviously, we agree at Moxie, but I, I would say too that owners of brokerages, I think the, the most underappreciated asset is the data they mm -hmm. themselves have. You know, own your data and get it into a place where you can leverage it. Because by the way, over my shoulder here in downtown Seattle, literally over my shoulder is, mm -hmm. is Zillow. Yep. So they're, they're certainly doing it. So, well, Matthew, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate your insights as always. And for the rest of you out there in podcast land, thanks for listening and see you soon again on another episode of The Real. Thank you.